Welcome to Desperately Seeking the 80s. I am Meg. And I'm Jessica. And Meg and I have been friends since 1982. We got through middle school and high school together here in New York City, where we still live. And where we are podcasting about New York City in the 80s. I do rip from the headlines. And I handle pop culture. Jessica, today I would like to share one of the many texts that our dear friend Nick has been sending us, specifically the one about Mortimer's, because it is so friggin' glamorous. Okay, I do know what you're talking about, and I second the motion. To be Nick. OMG Mortimer's. The last time I went, I had lunch with Nancy Biddle, Nick Dunn, and Jean Harvey Vanderbilt. Mrs. Onassis and Mr. Templesman were at the next table with Philippe de Montebello. I will remember the chicken payard until I die. Also, the big cocktail at Mortimer's was the bull shot, which should be revived for brunch and replace the Bloody Mary. Also, Glenn Birnbaum's pug, Swifty, was named after Swifty Lazar, which made Lazar furious. Well, because... Swifty Lazar did look like a pug. We've got to post a picture of him. All right. Swifties was started by Stephen Atto and Robert Caravaggi, who were the former chef and maitre d' respectively of Mortimer's. <laughs> Such good intel. That was really, really good intel. I think that we need to have Nick on the show to talk about his, because he really did live a life amongst the, the socialites of New York. And and Nick, I know you're listening. So if I've said something if I'm a I'm about to to quote you and if I say it incorrectly, I know you'll let me know. But he said, you know, there are all of these worlds in New York that we have perceived as being finished. And he said specifically the socialite mm-hmm. world that I was I was talking about with Mortimer's and he said not so. It's still very much alive. Things are just less transparent. Okay. So I would, I am really looking forward to Nick coming in with what is happening? Yes, pull back the curtain. We want to know. We want it all open. Oh, one more thing about Mortimer's. Yes. My mother, the reason why she wanted us to do the story is because this great book has just come out called Mortimer's A Moment in Time. I mean, just come out. And she was particularly interested in it because her college college friend, I think it's her college friend, Mary Hilliard did all the photographs. And they are gorgeous. I've been looking at them online. I love it. I know. Now I totally do have to get a copy of it. I've got so many coffee table books now because of subjects that we've done on this podcast, and I get, like, obsessed with them for who, who a week or so. Who published that? Do we have any idea who published that? No. We'll, we'll look it up and um, say it at the end of the podcast. I think we should start getting review copies of things. Mm. I think I'm going to reach out to some publicity there departments. You go. Okay. Are you ready for your engagement question? As ever. Uh, it's interesting. Because I thought about a few different things to ask you. And I think I've landed on, you went to a co-ed school. Prior to Nightingale, yes. Prior to Nightingale. When you moved to a single sex school, can you think of something that stood out to you? What the what a big difference was? In Lack terms of dick. 
No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Your 12-year-old self thought that? Uh, yeah, definitely <laughs> not. Um, what stood out to me? Well, there were a lot of different changes. And, you know, the uniform, I went from, you know, wearing normal clothes to wearing a uniform. And that was kind of weird. But the all... Yeah, just how the did the all, all girl, girl I mean, education, like, all girl education. Um, when I went from Fleming to Nightingale, I was still a kid. And, you know, dating and all of that wasn't happening. So I just went from a very, very familiar group of people to an unfamiliar group of people. Mm. And I was the only new girl in eighth grade. So there was so much that was new and so much going on that being able to pull out specifically that it's the single sex education is too difficult. It didn't hit me that I had a different experience as a single sex educated person until I got to college. Okay. Um, when I realized that the other young women like me who had gone to single sex schools were the only ones who, who really were outspoken the first year of college. Yeah. The other thing is that I was never uncomfortable around boys. And I think that some, uh, girls in our class or, you know, single sex nightingale Spence, Barely Chapin girls, you know, if they weren't in a dating scene, they were just totally removed from that socialization. Hmm. So that that wasn't something that was ever awkward. Does that make sense? I think so. Is it what you were even remotely what you were looking sure. for? Sure. I mean, they're open ended questions. I'm just, you know, it's engagement. I just want you to be engaged. Well, also, so I yeah, was, we're talking about gender stuff today. Yes. Well, I was also lucky like you were. I had an older brother at Collegiate and John's friends. I had a lot of access to, and they were very nice to me as mm -hmm. Dorfman's little sister. All right. Well, today, my sources are MoMA.org, New York Times from 1984, 1985, Tate.org, and Getty.edu. It's somewhat of a continuation of last week's episode. Yes, well, when I heard Tate, I'm thinking art. Yes. Okay. On June 14, 1984, 400 demonstrators marched in front of the entrance to the Museum of Modern Art's newly expanded 53rd Street building right off Fifth Avenue. The demonstrators marched in front of the museum wearing shorts and t-shirts in the suffragette colors, yellow and white, and held signs saying, let MoMA know, which I think was like, a Captain and Tennille song, song, like Let Mama Know. I'm not sure what they were trying to get at. And MoMA doesn't know best. I feel like they were trying to do a play on words, and I couldn't figure out what the play on words was. Sounds, so, it sounds like Mama. Yeah, right. The previous month, MoMA had opened the much-anticipated exhibition, An International Survey of Recent Painting and Sculpture. Two floors of the newly renovated museum held 195 works by 165 artists from 17 countries. Were they all male? <gasps> How did you know? Because I got the smatch in my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Quote, the show is a sign of hope. It is a sign that contemporary art is being taken as seriously as it should be, said Keniston McShine, the curator of the exhibit, who felt living artists were not being given their due. McShine added that any artist who wasn't in the show 
quote, should rethink his career. Well, that's a dick move. Of the 165 artists represented, all of whom established their reputations after 1975, only 13 were women. Hmm. Which gets us back to the demonstrators who, while their numbers were impressive and their message important, did not have the impact they were going for. The museum dismissed them as a minor nuisance, and New Yorkers flocked to the exhibit. The press barely noticed the controversy. But undeterred, a small group of women artists who had experienced the ineffectiveness of the traditional demonstration with its signs and police barricades, you know, the way you're supposed to do it, Mm -hmm. walk in a circle, they came up with a new way to deliver their message. They formed an anonymous collective called the Guerrilla Girls. The Guerrilla Girls, a group of feminist female artists, hit the streets of New York wearing gorilla masks. Oh, I remember this. And sticking posters with bold graphics and shocking statistics all over Soho and the East Village. One of their first posters asked, what did these artists have in common? They allow their work to be shown in galleries that show no more than 10% women or none at all. And these posters listed 52 living male artists by name, including Keith Haring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Roy Lichtenstein, and Chuck Close, just to name a few. Wow. So called them out by name. Wow. The confrontational nature of the posters, coupled with their cold, hard facts and visual impact, made for extremely effective marketing. One of their early and most iconic posters proclaimed, Do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? Oh, I remember that. Less than 5% of the artists in the modern art section are women, but 85% of nudes are female. Now, question. That poster got an update in 2012. So what, what do you, how do you think those numbers, just guess, how did those numbers change in 27 years? Wait, give me the numbers again. Um, less than 5% of artists in the modern art section are women. What do you think it was in 2012? Somewhere around 10%? Less than 4% of the artists. It went down? And how about this? of the nudes are female. What do you think it was in 2012? Uh, If it's 100%, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. That did go down. 76% of the nudes. Okay. But in 27 years? I mean, that's just like a completely negligible change. Well, who, who were and are the curators? Oh, Keniston McShine. Keniston McShine. Yeah, well, hmm. if the curators are have our white men if those are the guys with the jobs and the donors are actually white men. yeah and actually um keniston mcshine is not white but he is a man well has one strike against yes. him <laughs> so the gorilla girls membership fluctuates from a few to as many as 30 they go by the names of dead female artists like frida kahlo and alice neal The anonymity keeps the attention on their message. Quote, mainly we wanted the focus to be on the issues, not on our personalities or our own work. And think about it. If 
you don't know who they are, you can't really target them for being bitter or being, you know, it's like, what are you going to say? You can't say something misogynist and slighting about someone if you don't even know who they are. Well, you can just say something misogynist, but it's hollow. Yeah. I would imagine. You need you need the specifics. Yes, you need the dirt. Also, at the time of their inception, they felt it was necessary to avoid retribution. So they also were like, you know, I'd rather these guys not boycott my work. All of them were working artists, and they didn't need angry curators and collectors getting mad at them. And as for the masks, quote, we were gorillas before we were gorillas. From the beginning, the press wanted publicity photos. We needed a disguise. No one remembers for sure how we got our fur. But one story is that at an early meeting, an original girl, a bad speller, wrote gorilla instead of gorilla. It was an enlightened mistake. It gave us our mask ulinity. Anonymous free speech is protected by the Constitution. You'd be surprised by what comes out of your mouth when you wear a mask. I kind of love that. There's an Oscar Wilde quote about that, which I will dig up during our uh, our break. By the late 70s, feminists had been branded as man-hating, strident, and humorless, making it easy to dismiss them. The Gorilla Girls used playfulness and satire to deliver their chilling and often shocking facts. And they weren't scared to offend men. On their poster, well hung at the Whitney, they exposed that while museums claimed that their acquisition policies reflected a meritocracy, money and personal relationships were actually behind it all. Not surprising again. But I guess for me, it is a little bit because I think it took me a long time to realize that what I was seeing was a filter that you read the best books, but you don't know how the best books, supposedly best books came to you. You don't, it's, I think it's very easy for people to not realize that in fact, the best art isn't necessarily the best art. It's been picked. Well, sure. But I, th I think that as New Yorkers, we are both aware of the fact that the art gallery scene has long been a popularity contest and, you know, who's got the money, who's selling for the highest dollars, you know, that it's... it's and museums real, aren't supposed to work that way, but they do. But because it's the same world. And so I, yes, that's it. I just, I think that the gallery world, especially during that time, was known for being um, such a, a club that was pretty much focused on printing money. I mean, think of, oh God, what was his name? He had a whole, like a workshop and he was turning out paintings. I'm going to look up his name. I can't remember, but it was the business of art becoming more and more transparent. Kastabi, Mark Kastabi was his, is his name. Um, and in fact, in 2018, there was an article about him in artsy.net. Mark Kastabi is still hustling decades after 80s art stardom. So, you know, right. again, just underlining the theme that it's it's a hustle. Sure. I guess I, I'm getting back into my teenage self. And I didn't know anything about that. I was completely unaware. And if somebody told me this is the best thing you've ever seen, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense. I thought I 
thought it was a meritocracy. I thought if you worked really hard, you could get somewhere. Well, I mean, think about the the uh, canon of great literature. Exactly, it's the exact same thing. It's That's what, you're what I'm trying about. to say. Yeah, what what is being provided to us is being presented as definitive. the best and definitive, right. the canon. When in fact, it's been filtered. And in fact, like if a wealthy board member or a donor is willing to contribute money or a wing, not only will his taste be represented, but also the value of the art that he appreciates will increase. Correct. Nick, of course, can totally help us with all of this. Oh, Gosh, are we going to have to have him as the as the third leg of, of, of this group? <laughs> One poster stated quite bluntly, when racism and sexism are no longer fashionable, what will your art collection be worth? Mm. In addition to their weenie counts, that's what they call them, <laughs> they also draw attention to racial discrimination. Stated on the We Sell White Bread posters and stickers that they slap on offending galleries, quote, contains less than the minimum daily requirement of white women and non-whites. Clever. Very good. In 1986, quote, only four commercial galleries in New York show black women. Only one shows more than one. Hmm. In 2022, their posters are considered both art and an important part of art history. They're hanging in the most respected galleries and collectors pay a lot of money for originals. So now they're part the Gorilla Girls work. Yeah, Mm. they're part of the establishment. But their mission is ongoing. The art world is still way too, quote, male, pale, stale, and Yale. (gasps) I thought that was very cool. I love that. They're very, very smart ladies. And fortunately... They still walk amongst us, fighting discrimination with facts, humor, and fake fur. Bravo. 1985, advantages of being a woman artist. And then a blank. No, no, they have some. They have some. Working without the pressure of success. (laughs) Knowing your career might pick up after you're 80. Seeing your ideas live on in the work of others. Having the opportunity to choose between career and motherhood. Not having to undergo the embarrassment of being called a genius. Wow. Those are my favorites. That's that they pretty listed. good. That is pretty good. We were talking a little bit about wall labels last week. Oh, yes. This is from one of their posters. Three ways to write a museum wall label when the artist is a sexual predator. And they give, you know, a couple of examples of how people actually did write a wall label for Chuck Close. And then this is what they suggest instead. Mm-hmm. Chuck Close has had a huge career with prices to match. He has been accused of sexually abusing models and students he picked up at fancy art schools. How fitting and ironic that he painted the official portrait of Bill Clinton. The art world tolerates abuse because it believes art is above it all, and rules don't apply to genius white male artists. Wrong. I don't think you can comment on that. It's so definitive. That's it. Uh, But yeah, I mean, to your point last week, you're like, don't take the art away, just change the wall label. That's how they would change the wall label. And I I think that it's valid. Have you ever done anything anonymously? Me? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just this whole idea of like, the power of the mask. Have I ever written anything anonymously? Published anything anonymously? Does this include like bathroom walls? 
No, I don't, I don't think I have. I think I'm too um, egocentric. The other thing that I was thinking about when I was thinking about <laughs> engaging you yes. was the idea of being part of like a girl group, mm-hmm. whether it's like maybe it's a, a band or a mm-hmm. book club or just a group of friends who meet regularly or bridge club. I don't know. Have you ever been, you know, part of a, like the power of women together doing something? I was in Glee Club with you. Oh, that's right. There you go. Other than that, no. And I, you know what? And I think it's because I come from such a privileged position with so many genuine girlfriends because of our high school that I never found the need to like find my tribe elsewhere. I had my all female right, like people already. do sororities. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't want that, and I fa- and honestly, I found a lot of the women who I was meeting at that age, college age, and and in my early twenties, just not to be of the same caliber as my Nightingale girls, and they were still like infighting over boys and crap like that, and I was just like, what's the point? So no, I never ever looked for that. Well, I think we should make stickers. What kind? Well, the Gorilla Girls stuck stickers all over the place. We well, haven't done like stickers or posters. We should do that. Yeah. But we have to, you know, what's Come our... up with something super clever. And outrageous. Yeah. Oh, God, can't we just okay. stick up a picture of like a boob? <laughs> Isn't that like enough? <laughs> Can we just be like, here, tits. Woo! All right. First, we have to have a clever it's a radi- idea. It's, then it's we'll a, make a, a microphone and a boob. <laughs> that's 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 what our new logo is going to be. I was trying to remember that Oscar Wilde quote. Okay. And you said anonymity allowed them to speak their minds more clearly. And because I'm becoming addled. <laughs> day by day, more and more addled. I couldn't remember the quote perfectly, but it sprang to mind. And here's what it is. Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. Whoa. Very interesting. Meg. Hello. We return. We are back. I have an engagement question for you. Okay. Okay. Ready? I am. In New York City, what do you think inspires or creates urban renewal? Oh, define urban renewal for me. Well, when a when an area of the city is pretty down and out and then it gets a, a boost. Like what causes that boost? Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, gosh. Well, I will put you out of your misery. Okay, I'm sorry. Coming up dry. There is an interesting situation that happened in the mid-80s that brought a big part of Manhattan life back to life. Okay. In my mind, whenever there's urban renewal, it's usually, I think, because housing development happens. Uh, you know, developers come in and they're like, oh, this is really cheap and things are messed up and we can buy this for a song and okay. we're going to build on the spot. And it, New York is such a real estate driven company because it's so rare. Like, mm-hmm. There's so little of it. Or sometimes you'll see like in Hudson, New York, which was really a shithole 
let's be <laughs> honest. And a lot of gay men and women started moving into that area and zhuzhed it right the hell up. It's very pleasant. It is one of the most delightful areas. So you can have a group that you know, just decides this is an inexpensive area. We want to make this our home and and that's it. But in New York City in the mid 80s, there was an unusual uh, reason that there was a bit of, not a bit of, lasting urban renewal. A little bit of history. Union Square was not always Union Square. It was built over a long period of time uh, in, starting in the very late 1700s, as the streets were going down, you know, being laid out, the city was laid out. And by 1831, it was built up and funded by the city um, to be an incredibly fashionable place to live. So I don't know if you know on Broadway and, and university. Mm -hmm. There are all of these, and on the side streets, there's some remnants of really beautiful mansions. Yeah, that's the Gold Coast. Yep. And that's what that area was for. Mm -hmm. And then at around in the mid 1800s, mid to late, like 1870s, it became commercial. And this is sort of a good snapshot of how areas in New York degrade. So it went from being highly coveted uh, residential space with these beautiful structures to being for commerce. Okay. And the the companies that went into that area were um, Tiffany and Company and Gorham Silver. Okay. And lots of high-end stuff. Where are we now? In Union Square? Mm -hmm. Okay. And by around 1905, Tiffany moved. Everything okay. was out. But in the late, late 1800s, the area went from, and this is the slide, you go from high residential to retail to entertainment. Oh. And so you had theaters, you know, and uh, we had talked about this at one other point, like the the pleasure gardens. Yeah. Stuff like that was in that area. Mind you, when I say in that area, it was all around the park. Okay. And the park, the whole, the area that is Union Square doesn't mean just the park. It is 14th Street to 17th Street, mm -hmm. Madison to Broadway. And it was originally called Union Square, by the way, because I always thought that it was like the labor unions and that they must have been having some some protests there but no when the city was being laid out it was there was an awkward parcel of land one of the avenues had to turn in a peculiar way and it made an intersection that was the union of two streets oh right how clinical didn't know anyway so it went and and the park there was was designed by again Olmsted who did Central Park and Prospect Park in Brooklyn. So it slid down mm. with the entertainment people, right. as one does. Not only was it the theaters, but it was like costumers and the wig trade. Okay, and, and funny enough, you can still find wig sellers on 14th Street as they left because Broadway became Broadway uptown. No one wanted to go to the theater downtown anymore. It was certainly not for people with of any wealth. All of those buildings got broken up into tenements. 
and cheap housing. And then they became by the seventies and eighties shooting galleries, Yeah, you know, and um, Union Square was scary. It was scary. What do you remember of Union Square when we were kids and teenagers? Uh, Well, I don't don't think I ever went, but I do remember, remember the lore, the lore of crackheads that it was, it was where people went to just get stoned or OD. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, that was my memory as well. I just remember it being like, um, because it's actually, it's kind of big and, and there are, I don't know if there were trees there in the eighties, but there are trees there now. And if it wasn't safe, you, you wouldn't walk across it. No, there is, there is a transverse in the middle of the park that goes, I can imagine that being incredibly dangerous. Terrifying. People are going to jump out at you. There are lots of ways to jump out at you. For sure. Unions- oh, and, and prostitution. Yes. I remember that too. Why do I remember that? I don't know why, but I do. Because it was shocking to see, like, I don't know why this is, but I guess I had seen enough dirty old men, but to see an actual, like a woman in that scenario was really scary. It was against everything that you imagined you understood. Yeah. Um, At least for me. I told you the story about the flasher who came after me in the wheelchair. Yes. Did yeah. you tell our listeners? I don't know if I have. We'll have to check. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't think I did. I don't think you did. Okay. So here's an example of things that were shocking, but prostitutes were more shocking. And this tells you how shocking prostitutes were for us. I must have been around 12, something like that. And uh, walking around on my own, going to school, whatever, as one did at the time. And there was a movie theater on 86th Street between Lex and Third. I remember that was the movie theater where I I hope that Manaz is listening to this so she can set me straight if I'm wrong, but uh, that we played hooky to go see Christopher Atkins in One Night in Heaven (laughs) at that movie theater on 86th Street. And and we probably didn't skip a class. It was probably um, like a study hall, like an end of day study hall. But anyway... So I was walking past that theater, which, like a lot of old-fashioned theaters, had the ticket booth and then sort of a recess. Right. I wasn't, I, I had not grown the eyes in the back of my head yet. So as I was prancing on 86th Street going west towards Madison Avenue, I noticed out of the corner of my eye that there's something in that recess. Mm. And so I'm like skipping by like, and I look over and it's, I would say an older man. He, he was probably our age. Oh God. Um, but quite in, in quite a state of disrepair. So like, there's no way to tell what it was. And I, I tip my hat to him for really adhering to tradition because he was wearing a trench coat. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. And he was sitting in a wheelchair and he had his eyes on me as I walked all the way up the block. And by the time I got to him, I realized there was some hand motion underneath the I'm coat. Sorry. And I was like, well, this is not what I would normally see here. And then whoosh, the coat was opened. What is it about flashers? Why are they doing that? Do you know how many times I was flashed as a kid? I can't even count. 
I don't know what it. I mean, obviously, it's it's a it's an attention grabber. I, I just I, I I don't understand the psychology of it, and I don't know if it happens anymore. Do people get flashed? I don't know, Re- <laughs> listeners. <laughs> please please let us know. But what was great about this guy was that I freaked out, and and of course because we were raised in a certain era, I was like, oh, I can't do this too obviously, or I'll be rude to the flasher. <laughs> Honey, I want to give you a hug right now. And so I, I was like, like doing that weird fast walk where you're like <laughs> stiff legs, and like huh, I gotta, huh, I'm moving, I'm moving. Do you ever watch um, Bob's Burgers? Yeah. Okay. So I was Tina. Oh yeah. I was totally like, huh, 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 gotta get out. Huh, okay. And I look over my left shoulder, and he is wheeling behind <laughs> me, <laughs> and I'm like. What the fuck? And this guy's like, hey, hey, oh, whatever the sound of wheels is, like, is this is this an audible noise that I'm I'm in the wheel desk chair? And I just see like he's got like this perverted grin and he's just wheeling. And of course there's no way he could have caught up to me. But in that moment of it's panic, scary. I was like being it was like having a Mack truck bearing down on me in the shape of a trench coat. Mercifully, I don't remember what anything under the coat looked like. Oh, like I God. don't have that burned into my memory. This is one of our more uh, outrageous um, digressions from Union Square oh, right. to so, yeah, yeah we're not we're even talking, at Union Square. No, not even at Union so Square. We're prostitutes. prostitutes. So we're talking about prostitutes, and that that guy in the wheelchair was more ter- was less terrifying to me than a prostitute because that was the ultimate transgression because you're a woman. Anyway, so there we are back in the early mid '80s in Union Square Park where. You know, it's needles galore and junkies and muggings and God knows what else. And a 27-year-old guy had an idea. And not unlike these days, this 27-year-old guy got funding (laughs) for an idea. (laughs) But his idea changed Union Square and it changed America. What? And that was... Danny Meyer's Union Square <gasps> Cafe. Danny Meyer, I love him. Why do you love him so very much? Because he is the king of hospitality. His restaurants are a joy to go to. You feel like you are a member of the family. Well, he saved Union Square by gentrifying it as more and more people flocked to this fledgling restaurant that was doing this thing that no one else had really done, new American cuisine. What was it? It's it was high end food in a relaxed but not shabby atmosphere. And as as people flocked there in exactly, you know, a, a reverse of the downgrading of Union Square, more and more people with more and more money were coming into the area, more restaurants came in and then people started getting into the buildings and, you know, that whole area revived. And the reason I said that he is also responsible for changing the United States is that he really did create a menu with his his first chef that changed the way America ate. The idea of elevated mac and cheese. Yeah. That's 
Union Square Cafe. The idea of having fried chicken not as just a picnic food, Danny Meyer. So that making, you know, truly American food and comfort food into high-end restaurant dining was, it started in Union Square, at the Union Square Cafe. So a tip of the hat to Danny Meyer. I guess it was in the 2000s. I don't even know how many restaurants he had in the neighborhood. I know he he always made it so he could walk from one restaurant to the other. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to get all the ingredients from the Union Square Green Market. Yeah. It is one of the best green markets in the city. Yeah. I thought that was sort of heartwarming and charming and a great example of, you know, sometimes you take a chance and something really great happens. Oh, and at that time, the city had decided that it had to put money into Union Square itself the park because it was so dangerous. So there was a grant, I think of around $50,000 to refurbish the area. So Danny Meyer must have been savvy enough to get in on that. I'll tell you a good Danny Meyer restaurant story. Okay. So Gramercy Tavern, Uh which is one of the best restaurants in the country. We have dined together multiple times. Yeah. Alice, my daughter, is about two years old, not really the ideal age to take a child to a fancy restaurant, but it was my father's birthday. And I, you know, she was usually, she was pretty good in a restaurant. They treated her like she was a princess. They brought out individual Alice-sized amuse-bouche for her. No. Absolutely. They treated her like she was a member of the family. Like I was saying before, I was like this, I'm coming back to this restaurant any and every time I can. And because they treated her, this two-year-old child so well, Mm -hmm. she was happy as a clam and we were happy as clams. And everyone around us thought everything was wonderful. It, it, It was just a completely different approach to how you treat your customers. I, I, I can't even describe it. No, no. You just reminded me of something funny. Um, I remember being there with my family for a birthday or something I, at Union Square, not at Grandma's Tavern. There was a large round table of only men who were getting drunker and drunker and drunker and louder and louder and louder. And it was so obnoxious, but they were clearly dropping a ton of money. You know, it was just bottle after bottle after bottle of of whatever. It was so obnoxious that we just couldn't take it anymore. Mm. And the wait person just came to us and said, I can see that you're very, very unhappy with this. And what I'm going to do is I'm letting you know that we're going to do something about it, but I'm not going to walk right over to their table so they don't think it's you who's saying anything because it's not. It's me. I'm recognizing what's going on. She said, I'll I'll take care of it. And about two minutes later, from a completely different direction, she sidles up to their table and tells them to behave. They all sat up straight. <laughs> they stopped lounging and they shut the hell up. So- I agree with you. Like that is a level of of intuitive service that is 
unreal. And I have a feeling that whatever the white person said wasn't rude. I have a feeling that it was somehow hospitable and gave them the, the gave incentive them the opportunity to, to be behave right. better. Yeah. Right. Because if they, they were drunk enough and enough men at one table that they could, if she had said something unpleasant, they would have, you know, right. dug their heels in. He wrote a book, Danny Meyer did, about hospitality. It might even be called Hospitality, but we should look it up. Interesting. And yes. it's all about his, just the way that he thinks about restaurants. He also started, and it didn't, I'm not sure that it took off so well, but mm -hmm. he is not a huge fan of tipping. Mm -hmm. He would rather pay everybody a wage and not have people tip. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that when you look at the prices on the menu, you're like, holy crap, because then your bill is much higher, but you're not factoring in the fact that you don't have to put 20% on that. Anyway, he tried really, really hard at a lot of his restaurants, and I don't know if it really took off, but it's smart, and it would change this whole tipping system that's so whack. Grotesque. It's not great. And if, you know, I don't, you've worked in the food industry. No, I for one day. Oh, right. No. <laughs> well, I've worked I, in the food industry, and being paid through tips sucks. Yeah, it's not for me. I don't, I don't think I would get a lot of tips. It would depend on my how I felt that day more than my ability to actually grin and bear it. And usually it has nothing to do with how good you are at your job. It has to do with, you know, how generous the person is, which shouldn't have anything to do with how much you get paid, for how the much work you, you get paid for the very good job that you're doing. Yeah, indeed. The other thing that doing this little bit of research made me think of is I looked at my bookshelves and I realized I don't own the Union Square Cafe cookbook, which is insane. So that's right. what I'm going Gosh, to we, get. we do have a book list. We do. We should, we should, we should publish to any publisher who's listening. We are now putting out the call. Send us <laughs> review copies. The Danny Meyer book is Setting the Table, The Transforming Power of Hospitality in Business. Love it. Yes. I'm sure it's applicable to far more than just the hospitality industry, quite frankly. I think it's just a way of thinking about how you run a business and how, how you give a service. Thoughtfully. Right. Very outside the box thinking. Hmm. So... Speaking of outside the box thinking, yes. can you identify a link between our segments? I mean, they were both very creative. They saw a problem, Gorilla Girls and Danny Meyer. Do you think that it's possible that the Gorilla Girls had their posters up in the Union Square area? But that's a downtown I'm sure thing. they did. Of Fabulous. course they did. Fabulous. Okay, this might be a little more esoteric, but the Gorilla Girls were looking for recognition and hospitality, not hospitality, recognition and um, inclusion and being treated well. And that is the core of hospitality. Very well done, Jessica. Thank I you. am impressed. Thank you. As Thank you very much. Always. Oh, 